Good morning. Man, you guys proved me wrong. I told Dave this morning, almost everybody I know is away on vacation. The place is going to be empty. And Dave said, how do you know? I said, Dave, I just know. Pride cometh before a fall. Well, Today we're going to talk about uh, the smallest man in the Bible. A few of you are probably turning to Luke 19, Zacchaeus. After all, he was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Others of you are going to Job, where one of the friends was named Bildad, the Shuhamite, Shulamite, but actually we're going to Nehemiah. It gets worse from here on out. Just want you to know. Thank you. I appreciate that. Let's go ahead and uh, ask God to guide our time. Father God, how good you are. How good to be in your word with brothers and sisters in the Lord and maybe some who are still seeking to know you. How good it is to gather together and study a man named Nehemiah. And Father, while today we will only set up the book and not even be in the book, we pray that it would give us a context, an understanding that will help us to appreciate this man named Nehemiah. Father, he's a layman writing to lay people. So, Father, we have a lot in common with him. Speak to us through him, through your word, for your glory and our betterment. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I thought about the book of Nehemiah, my mind went to General Westmoreland. General Westmoreland was in charge of the American troops during Vietnam in 1964 to 1968. He was a great general in many ways. One day when he was out evaluating some of the troops, he came across a number of paratroopers, those who risked their lives, they jumped from planes to protect our freedom. And he walked over to the paratroopers he walked over to this burly man, clearly a longtime vet, bulging biceps, clearly a man that had earned many ribbons and medals. He said, son, what do you think about jumping? And the man said, I live for the next jump. I love to jump. I love to be the first one in to protect for my country. And Dr. Westmoreland, or uh, General Westmoreland, was well pleased. He said to the second man, son, what do you think about jumping? He said, ah, oh, it's a rush. I love to jump, can't wait to jump. It's in my blood. General Westmoreland was well pleased. He turned to the third guy and he said, son, what do you think about jumping? 
And he kind of looked at his shoes and he looked down and he had a soft voice and he said, I hate jumping. I'm scared. Every time I jump, it scares the bejeebies out of me. I don't like it. And General Westmoreland was a little taken back. He said, why did you join the paratroopers if you don't like to jump? And the man straightened up. He looked the general in the eye. And he said, it's because I like to be with people who jump. And that might be true of many of us. We like to be with risk takers. People who are willing to lay it all on the line. We want to be influenced by people who will take a risk. And that's Nehemiah. Nehemiah had among the most dangerous but well-compensated jobs in the Persian Empire. And he took a risk. He took a risk from God. He took a risk for God. He took a risk to leave that job, to even go to a king and ask if he could leave to go back to the city of his heritage, a city he had never seen before. He took a great risk. Nehemiah is a man of incredible integrity. He's a man of boldness. He's a man of courage. He's a man of guts. He's a man that I think many of us will learn to admire if we do not already. As you and I study this man named Nehemiah, we're going to discover that we know nothing about his childhood. We know next to nothing about his family. But we will learn more about what makes this man a God-centered leader than almost anyone else in the Old Testament. Today we're really not even going to get in the book of Nehemiah. We're just going to look at the background. We're going to look at what leads up to why this man leaps, takes a jump, becomes a paratrooper for God and God's kingdom. I think this background is essential. It would be like a mechanic who relies on a Chilton manual or a cook who relies on Betty Crocker. So too we need to rely on the background leading up to Nehemiah to understand who this man is. We all actually go all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, you and I are introduced to a man named Abram, who later will be called Abraham, father of many nations. And you remember that God gives Abram an unconditional promise. It is the only unconditional promise that you and I will look at today. Every other promise that we see will be conditioned on obedience. The condition will be just like this. If you obey, God will bless. If you disobey, God will bring discipline, chastisement, even curse among the nation. But this promise in Genesis 12 is unconditional. God promised that Abram... Abraham, the father of many nations, will have offspring that will number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore of the sea. 
And so that promise was then passed on from Abram to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, Genesis chapters 12 to 50. That's the promise that is unconditional. There will be a great offspring called the Jews that will number like the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. But then God begins to give conditional promises. Typical is this one in Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, we read the following. And if, you see the condition right there. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land of the Lord your God, the land that God is giving you. Verse 10. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. So God is very clear. If you obey, he will give you blessing. He will fill your vats. He will fill your vines. He will fill your barns. Your enemies will flee. He will bless your life. Verse 15. But if, you see the condition. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Now we can push back today. We might push back and say, well, that's Old Testament. It has nothing to do with the New Testament. And yet we're tripped up four times in Scripture where God says, I am the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we see similar conditions, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. That if we follow God, if we honor God, He will bring blessing into our lives, either temporally or eternally, or perhaps both. But if we disobey God, He will bring chastisement, discipline, even curses in our life, perhaps temporally, perhaps eternally, perhaps both. It is found throughout the pages of Scripture, whether Old Testament or New. God promises to bless His people if they honor Him. As I thought about this, I thought about Charles Spurgeon. He was a great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, the late and mid-1800s in London. But Spurgeon was not just a great pulpiteer, he was also a humanitarian. And as a humanitarian, he oversaw at least one and probably several different orphanages where he would provide a roof and food for children who did not have parental care. Well, as the main provider, it was Spurgeon's job to raise up the money needed to feed these children. Well, the bills began to mount, and the money wasn't coming in. And Spurgeon thought to himself, you know, this coming Sunday, I'm preaching in the three largest Baptist churches in Bristol. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask each church to give me 100 pounds towards the orphanage. 
Now a pound today is worth about $1.22, so about $365, but we're talking about the 1870s or 1880s. It was a great deal of money. So he went and preached at the three Baptist churches in Bristol. They each gave him 100 pounds. He had 300 pounds. He went home. It was a hard day's work. He put the money on the table. He went down. He slept. He thought, you know, I'm going to get a good night's sleep, and, and he couldn't fall asleep. It was as though God were speaking to his heart. And God said, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm so thankful that you obeyed and you picked up the 300 pounds. But this is what I want you to do. You're not to use it for your orphanages. You're to give it to George Mueller for his orphanages. George Mueller oversaw many orphanages in London. And Spurgeon was a big fan of George Mueller. But he wasn't a big fan of giving the 300 pounds he had just received to George Mueller when he had bills to pay. And so he argued with God. I know we've never done that. They do that over in, like, the Marathon campus. But, but you guys never argue with the Lord. And so he argued with God over and over, and he couldn't sleep. Finally, he said, fine, Lord, I will do what you want. And he fell asleep. The next morning, he got up. He went over to one of the orphanages. George Mueller was there. He knocked on the door. George was on his knees praying that God would give him 300 pounds. And there was Spurgeon to give him 300 pounds, exactly what George Mueller prayed for. And if you've ever read anything about George Mueller, he was always doing that. He was always praying. In fact, he sometimes set the table without food and prayed that God would deliver food and and God did. That was the life of George Mueller. Well, George Mueller was blessed, but Spurgeon was a little bit discouraged. So he went back home, not knowing how to pay any of his bills. He got to his desk, and there was an envelope with 300 guineas, which is 1.05 pounds to a guinea. That is, God gave him 300 pounds with 15 pounds of interest. And he never knew where the money came from. Now, does God always work that way, that fast? Not in my life, maybe in yours. But the truth is this. God says he will bless his people, either temporally, eternally, or both, if we are found in obedience to God. Unfortunately, that was not the history of the Jews. The history of the Jews is one of disobedience time and time and time again. So when we leave the patriarchal period of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we leave Genesis, we go into the period of the Exodus. This is the time period when God raises up Moses. He goes to the Pharaoh. He speaks for God. He says, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. A number of plagues ensue. And finally, they are ushered out. God separates the Sea of Reeds. They drive, walk on dry land, and they get into the promised land. And now we are in the period of Joshua. But during the, the period of Joshua, the conquest, we're going to see trouble. Prior to that, we also see trouble. What happens when God separates the Sea of Reeds? They go into the promised land, but they don't get their inheritance for how many years? 40. Why? Because they don't believe in God. 
They don't trust God. In fact, God will have to eliminate an entire generation because of disbelief. Because what has God said? If you honor me, I will bless you. If you don't honor me, I will bring chastisement and discipline. An entire generation was wiped out because they did not honor God. So after 40 years, Joshua is raised up. We go into the conquest, and God gives them the parameters of the land of Israel. To this day, Israel has never acquired all the land that God gave them. The borders have never, even once, been achieved by the Jews. Not once. You think about the conquest, the book of Joshua. God told them to drive out the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, the Hittites, the Amorites. Drive them out, and they chose not to do it. They went from city to city, but they didn't trust God enough to acquire all the land that God promised them. And to this day, they still don't have all the land. After the period of the conquest, after Joshua, we come to the book of Judges. We're at uh, 1430 to 1100 B.C. It's 330 years. What's the refrain given to us four times in the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes rather than in the eyes of God. That's the refrain for 330 years. And God raises up judges, some good, some evil, but it's a period of 330 years of fiefdoms. Not one judge will ever rule over all 12 tribes. It will not occur even once. These are fiefdoms that war against one another and primarily war against the Midianites who have the upper hand and the Philistines who have the upper hand and the Jews are, are oppressed. Why? Because God said, if you obey me, if you honor me, I will bless you. But if you don't obey me, I will bring discipline. I will bring chastisement. I will bring curse into your life. And they constantly disobeyed God. Finally, after the 330-year period of the judges... The people come to God, and rather than acknowledge a theocracy, a God rule, they ask for a man rule, 1 Samuel chapter 8. They say, will you give us a king of flesh and blood? Everyone else has a king. We need a king. And God said, bad idea. But they wanted a king, and so Saul was raised up. And Saul was a man without a heart for God. It might be a little bit better than the period of the judges, but it's not very good. And Saul will reign for 40 years. Now we're in the 11th century B.C., heading towards the 10th century. It's a period of darkness. But after 40 years, Saul dies, and we have David. This is First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. And David is a godly king. He's a king with a full heart for God. He loves the Lord. He's got all sorts of faux pas. Have you ever read the life of David and you say, how does the scripture say that he had a heart for God? I mean, the guy commits adultery. He commits murder. God says, don't count the, anim count the animals. He counts the chariots. He counts the warriors. He's always messing up. 
I love David. I appreciate David a great deal. And during the 40 years of David's reign, they're golden. By the way, if you go back to 1992 and before, liberal scholars will tell you that David is a figment of biblical imagination. That the only reason anyone believes in David is the Bible and a few people who wrote about the Bible because we have no historical evidence of David. Now understand why first, and then I'm going to give you a little bit more information, but understand why. Fifty major battles and wars have been fought in Jewish territory since the time of David. Fifty. Do you know how much destruction to archaeology exists in Israel? However, in 1993 at Tel Dan, a place that I take uh, people who go to Israel with me, we found a stella, which is a stone slab, and across it it read, House of David. Soon after that, we found similar stellas in Syria and Turkey, and now we're excavating in south of the Temple Mount, the actual Temple of David. So although we didn't have extra biblical evidence for David until 1993, now we have a plethora of evidence that this man not only existed, as Scripture says, but it was the golden age of Israel. It was a time when the borders expanded. It was a time when the army was feared. It was a time when commerce developed. It was the golden age. Well, David can't live forever. Saul lived for 40 years. David lived for 40 years of reign. And then we have Solomon. And Solomon had a half a heart for God. He started well. And then he faded fast. Listen to what God said to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. And as for you, if, you see the condition... If you will walk before me, as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then, you see, if, then, if you do this, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. Verses 6 and 7. But if, conditional, if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and you do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them then. If then, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And we know exactly what happened in Solomon's life. Solomon started well, he faded fast. He started with a bride he loved, Shulamite, the Song of Solomon. And then he added 299 other brides, not a good thing. And then he added 700 concubines, not a good thing. His heart was turned away from the Lord. He went after false gods. He made alliances with pagan nations. And this is the result. Just a couple chapters later, 1 Kings 11, verses 9, 11, and 12. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Verses 11 and 12. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. I will give it to your servant, that is Jeroboam. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son, 
that is Rehoboam. And that is exactly what happened. You remember the events. It's civil war, really. After Solomon dies, his son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne. Within a week or so, the ten northern tribes secede. They take the name Israel. The two southern tribes take the name Judah. And for the next 50 years, we have civil war. We don't often think of that, but that's really what occurred. Five northern kings, three southern kings, 50 years. We have nation against nation, family against family, house against house, brother against brother. 50 years of civil war. Why? Because God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I will bring chastisement, discipline, and I will curse your nation. We as Americans know the horror of civil war. We think of the 1860s. State against state. House against house. Family against family. Brother against brother. Somewhere between 630 and 750,000 men died in our civil war. 2% of our population. 4% of the male population of the United States died in our civil war. It was a brutal time. And yet that's what we have the dividing of the kingdoms, we have 50 years of civil war. Five northern kings, three southern kings, house against house, family against family, civil war. And it didn't get any better after that. You think about those 10 northern tribes, they retained the name Israel. They will last for 200 years they will have 20 kings from nine different dynasties. It was not a safe job to be a king, especially of Israel. About two of you from your family and you were knocked off, you were assassinated. Nine different dynasties because they constantly disobeyed God. And God said, if you would obey me, if you would obey my word, I will bring blessing in your life. But if you disobey me, I will bring chastisement and discipline and I will curse the nation. And constantly for 200 years, they chose to disobey God. And finally in 722 B.C., God brought the Assyrians. And the northern tribes essentially ceased to exist. If we didn't see that a remnant must still exist during the tribulation of Revelation 7, we would say that the north has ceased to exist. But a remnant obviously exists, Scripture tells us, but they're unidentified as of even today. And then we have the south, Judah. They'll last for 325 years. The north, 200 years. The south, 325 years. The south will have... 19 kings and one queen, Athaliah, a godless woman. But there will be six godly kings. There will be Asa and Jehoshaphat and Joash. There will be Hezekiah, Uzziah, and Josiah. Six godly kings. And because of six godly kings, God gives them 125 extra years. 
Why? Because God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will chastise you. Do you know what the refrain was for the 20 ungodly kings in the north, Israel? And the king did evil in the sight of God, and he carried the people with him. That refrain is for all 20 kings. And God gave them 200 years. Why? Because God is slow to anger and abounding in love. He's patient and kind, and he gave them 200 years. And with six godly kings, he gave the south 325 years, an extra 125 years. But finally, God raised up Babylon in 605 and 586. This is what we just studied in the book of Habakkuk. This is Babylon. This is the Chaldeans. And they come and they ransack Israel. And this brings us to my text. You thought I'd never get there. Second Chronicles, and I'm almost done with the sermon, so don't fear. Second Chronicles 36. This sets up the book of Nehemiah. In 2 Chronicles 36, let me read verses 18 and 19. And all the vessels of the house of God. We're talking about the temple. We're talking about the church. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he, that is King Nebuchadnezzar, brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God. They burned the church. They burned the temple. They burned the temple mount. And they broke down the wall of Jerusalem. What is Nehemiah coming to do? Rebuild the wall. And they burned all of its palaces with fire. And they destroyed all of its precious vessels. That's what's going on. The city of Jerusalem is in waste. If you've ever seen footage from perhaps like the Vietnam War, you'll see that in the distance, there's plumes of smoke as villages are being burned. You'll see that the trees are splintered as howitzers and artillery pieces have destroyed the forest. You'll, you'll see that the, the land that was once fertile was desolate and the people are, are terrified. That's what happened in Jerusalem. Verse 20. He, Nebuchadnezzar, took into exile in Babylon those who escaped from the sword. So many died but some were taken as captive. That's the book of Daniel with Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Three taken into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. You see, as we learned in the book of Habakkuk, God allowed the Chaldeans to be his chastising, discipleship, discipling role in the life of Judah. But eventually Babylon was also going to be chastised. So Babylon will rule for 50 years, and then they'll be taken over by the Medes and the Persians, and they will rule over the Jews for 20 more years. And that takes us to verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. What we have here is a pagan king. And God's speaking to the heart of a pagan king. Nobody is beyond the touch of God. 
Nobody is beyond the influence of God. We rightly pray for our nation. We rightly pray for our world. We rightly pray for leaders because God can impact them just as he impacted Cyrus. And so what did Cyrus do? He made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house. This is a pagan king who has been charged by God to build God's house in Jerusalem, the rebuilt temple, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God with him, let him go up. And so you remember what happened. Cyrus says to the Jews, you're free. 50 years of captivity under Babylon. 20 years of captivity under the Medo-Persian Empire. God comes to a pagan king. He sets on the pagan king's heart to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so the king says to all the Jews, you're free to go back. And most don't. There's three waves that will go back. The first is in 536. It's under Zerubbabel. This is the book of Haggai. This is the book of Zechariah. This is when they go back to rebuild the house of God, the church, the temple. That receives priority because it's near and dear to the heart of God. The second won't be for 90 more years 457. This is the book of Ezra. And Ezra goes back with the priests. They will wait for 90 years before they go back. The clergy don't lead the way, unfortunately. And when the clergy go back, then they bring revival to the land and they reinitiate the law and they reinitiate holiness because that is near and dear to the heart of God. And then in 444 BC, God raises up a layman. His name is Nehemiah, who has a very lucrative job to leave his job to go back to build the walls of Jerusalem. That's our man. Now think about those three waves. God said, go back and build my temple. The centrality of the church and the economy of God near and dear to God's heart. And then Ezra, go back and and teach the people holiness, the centrality of holiness, near and dear to the heart of God. And then he raises up Nehemiah to take the lay people to do acts of service near and dear to the heart of God, the centrality of the church, the centrality of holiness, and the centrality of serving God's kingdom as we go out. That's what happens with the rebuilding of Israel. Nehemiah, he's a lay person. He's a man of vision. He sees walls to be rebuilt where all there is is destroyed mortar. He's a man of prayer. When he has to ask the king for permission to leave his post, to go to a land he's never been to to rebuild the walls, what's the first thing he does? He prays and then he talks. He's a man of action. By chapter 2, we're going to find that not only does he lead the people, he takes up a trowel and he starts to rebuild the walls. He takes up a weapon in one hand, a trowel in the other, to protect the people from the enemy. He's a man of conviction, chapter 5 and 6. They run out of money and he starts to pay it out of his own pocket. 
He's a man that can take ridicule, chapters 2 and 4. He can handle enemies, chapters 5 and 6. He can even handle false prophets, chapters 5 and 6. He's a man who lives for the glory of God. Chapter 13, what does he say? Remember me, God, and the good I did. In other words, Lord, focus on how I live out my life for your glory. Nehemiah is a layman writing a lay letter to lay people like us that we might live for God's glory and God's purposes, that we might receive the blessing of God rather than the discipline, the chastisement, and the curse of God. Let's pray. Oh, I promise I'll be in Nehemiah next week. Father God, I thank you for Nehemiah, a man of incredible integrity, a man filled with your spirit, a man of conviction, a man that we want to be like. Father, as we study him and all that you did through him and the character that he exhibited, May you do the same in us, and may we imitate him as he imitates you. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.